Well, good morning, church. How is everyone this morning? Doing well, I hope. I'm very pleased that you were here with us this morning. I'd like to also uh, say uh, welcome to those joining us in Wills Point, also those on our online. We're glad that you're spending time with us this morning as well. If you have your Bibles, um, you can go ahead and turn to James chapter 4. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 11, uh, right where uh, Brandon left off last week. Uh, but our text for this morning is just going to be two verses. And um, two verses, we may think, I will run through this rather quickly, but uh, through my study this week, I found that um, there is a lot that we could talk on um, at length on these two verses, and this morning I'll do my best to, to cover a lot of what's here for us and what James has to say in these two verses. Uh, but to begin, I want to share a story that I came across uh, about Charles Spurgeon, uh, about him and his wife. At one point in time, that they had, um, they had a bunch of chickens, and they would, uh, of course, the chickens would have eggs, and the eggs that they didn't use, they would sell uh, to other people. Um, but over time, as they would sell this, people began to realize that they never just gave eggs away, even to their family. Like they didn't, most times, if people have chickens, they get a bunch of eggs, and I'm thankful for many people within the body that have chickens and eggs, and hey, would you like some eggs? Yes, absolutely, save me some money. But the Spurgeons, though, they never gave away eggs. Every time they sold eggs, even to family. If you wanted eggs from the Spurgeons, you had to pay for the eggs. But over time, there were some critics that came about, and they would be critical of the Spurgeons. Um, and they would say that they were greedy and that they would never just give away eggs. He, had a, he was the pastor of a massive church in England at the time, and uh, he had a salary to match that. But people would call him greedy. You, you have means. Why are you always selling your eggs? Why can't you just give them away? It's akin to like a, people would look at him kind of like a televangelist today. You've got all this stuff. You give nothing away. You always want money. But such was the criticism of the Spurgeons. But they took the criticisms and they never defended themselves. But it wasn't until after his wife died that the truth was shared that the proceeds from all of those egg sales went to support two elderly widows. Now that knowledge settles a whole lot of reason. But the challenge is, is before that knowledge is made known, we have people who would be critics of them that would see a behavior that they don't agree with, that they don't fully understand, but nonetheless, they will come up with a moniker that they will apply to an individual as greedy simply because they have knowledge that he never gives away eggs. He always sells them. But nonetheless, this type of thing can become very damaging if we think through Charles Spurgeon and who this man is, he's a pastor of, of the Metropolitan Tabernacle at that point in time in England. But if word may be shared, his name may be slandered in a way as a greedy pastor who won't give away eggs, very well could potentially keep someone from entering his church just on those grounds. But nonetheless, when it comes to slander and Falsely speaking against someone, there's always damage that can come about such foolish criticism. And this is the foolishness that James begins to rebuke in these two verses that we're going to look at this morning. Back in chapter 3, James, he returns to this idea that he introduces in chapter 1 where he begins to teach us about taming the tongue. And we talked at length about that, about taming the tongue. Such a great fire can be set ablaze by the tongue. 
But he taught generally on just the damage that our tongues can do. But here he draws in specifically to the things that we speak, the things that come out of our mouths. But not only what we are saying, but who we are saying it about and why we are saying the things that we say. So in James chapter 4, verse 11, James tells us, he says, Now, do not speak evil against one another. Brothers, he says, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. So there's a lot there in that one sentence, but let's begin with the beginning of it. Do not speak evil against one another. So at heart here, at issue, is defamation. Defamation of character. Definitionally, that means an action or it's the action of damaging the good reputation of someone. It's slander or libel. Defamation is a false statement presented as fact that causes injury or damage to the character of the person it is about. Right? We have laws on the books against this thing. Like if, you, if someone were to slander or defame your name, you can take this person to court and sue them for damages because they've defamed your name. Right? So in the world system and with, with an our way of living, even the world outside of the church body, they, they disagree with it. Now, this is not something that you do to a person. You shouldn't slander. You shouldn't ruin the reputation or character of an individual. So James says you shouldn't do this thing. But let's look at what he says here when he says that you shouldn't speak evil against. What is he really getting at? The word in the Greek is katalaleo, which means to slander. But it's an interesting uh, word. So if you'll follow me down this rabbit hole that I went down this week as I studied this. Uh, this word is formed by two Greek words, one kata and one laleo. Now, laleo means to utter a voice. It's to emit a sound. So in a sense, I open my mouth, sounds come out. That's laleo. I'm speaking. But it carries the same meaning for, say, a dog that barks or a cat meows, a horse neighs, a donkey bellows. All of those sounds, that is laleo. There's no substance to it other than conveying sound emitting from our mouths. But by contrast, there's a word in the Greek called lego, which means to teach or to exhort, to advise, to command. The word lego implies a speech that is logical, that it's reasoned, there's intent behind the words that are spoken. Right now, the words that are coming out of my mouth, my speech is lego, in that, that it's intended to teach. I've thought through what I'm saying, I have intent in what I'm saying, and the purpose is to build up with what I'm saying. But the way we speak nowadays, it could be said comparatively like this. Like we would say a teacher says laleo versus the teacher has something to say lego is the difference between these two words. But I share these two words and the difference because it helps us to see what James is getting to when he uses this word kata laleo because it's coming together. He's using the preposition kata, which means down. So katalaleo is when we speak, when we open our mouth and we utter sounds not to build up, not to teach, not to exhort or encourage in any way. The purpose with which we use our words is to bring people down. We speak down against people. But we don't speak down against people with katalego, with, with meaning and intent in order to build someone up. We speak down on people katalaleo. So it's to speak evil against, it's to slander, it's to maliciously malign. 
someone. It's to denigrate, defame. Backbite. We get the word backbite from this. But what is the nature of backbiting? Most oftentimes, whenever you kind of you get in, into a circle and you find yourself in, in the circle of friends and gossip may begin to happen in some way, you can call that backbiting because whenever someone is gossiping, who is not present in that conversation every time? The subject of the conversation. Such as the idea with backbiting. You're speaking against someone and they are not in your presence. So you're maligning them, you're speaking falsely against them, and they're not even there to make a defense for the things that you're saying. In the example with Charles Spurgeon and his wife, they never made a defense for what people said about them. But most likely, they were never in the circle of conversation where someone would be talking about them. They probably just heard about, hey, so-and-so said this about you. Okay. Which we can learn something from that. There's something to be said there, but... Not for our text this morning, as far as time goes. But such is the nature of gossip and slander. It's to backbite an individual. But in Proverbs chapter 6, we find what the Lord thinks about this. Uh, chapter 6, verse 16 through 19. This was the, uh, the text for um, one of our devotionals that came out yesterday morning, if you follow uh, the church study of Proverbs right now. Um, in which, by the way, again, Brenda, fantastic job with your Devo. But in verse 16 of Proverbs 6, this is what it says. It says, there are six things which the Lord hates. Seven, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. And one who spreads strife among brothers. So we see that the Lord hates it. It falls within a list and several lists throughout our Bible of a thing that the Lord hates, the Lord detests, that he might find an abomination. The thing in this, the implication with what's an abominable to the Lord is a person that would spread strife or contention among brothers. And the means with which a person does this is by falsely speaking against and uttering lies against one another. So the Lord hates it, but what does it accomplish? So I have a series of questions that I'm going to ask that just go ahead and answer is the way I've kind of formed this. So what does it accomplish? Proverbs 16, 28 says, A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. So spread strife, verse 19 we just read, it's contention among brothers, but it also brings about separation from one another. The word whisperer in the Hebrew is near gone, but it's the Hebrew equivalent to katalaleo, or backbiter or slanderer. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. So what does it accomplish to slander and to speak falsely or evil against someone? It can bring people to ruin. It can ruin relationships. It can ruin reputations. Job opportunities, livelihoods, careers can be ruined. You don't have to look far in the in the world, the unbelieving world, to see these types of things take place. You can speak something, and I mentioned this before, just out of turn that doesn't fall in line with a certain way of thinking, and you can lose everything based on something that you said. But now when we speak against someone equally, we can ruin someone's life and their reputation by a word that we would say falsely about them. Now what is it associated with, slander? 2 Corinthians 12.20 uh, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and, and he says this to them. He says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. 
So Paul is writing. He's like, hey, I'm going to come to you, but you're dealing with a lot of things right now. But I fear that when I get there, I'm not going to find you in a good, faithful place. I fear that I'm going to find you in a place that I wouldn't desire you to be. But equally, I fear you're going to find me coming in a way you don't want to see me coming. Paul would desire to come in a way and encourage and exhort the faithful, commend them for their faith, which he does in several areas in his letters. But here he says, I fear that I'm going to be able to do that. And you're, you would rather me come and do that thing versus how I'm going to likely have to come. But he says that the reason for this is that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Paul's saying, it's very possible that these things exist within your body. And when I get there, I'm going to have to admonish you and rebuke you and speak into all these things, those of which is slander, but he Equated with slander within that list is quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, gossip, conceit. All of these things tie together. But they're all an example of how we, the body of Christ, mistreats itself. 1 Peter 2.1, he tells us to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Peter says, put these things away. Paul says, I'm going to come and have to correct this behavior. Peter says, put it away so I don't have to. Come and correct that behavior. Now the next question is, how easy is it to entertain? Think about conversations that we find ourselves in. Just casual conversations, wherever it may be. I'm not going to speak into you know, the, the salon and what conversation may be there, or the barbershop, you know, the cliche places where gossip always happens. But think about conversations that you find yourself to be in. How easy is it to entertain gossip? Look with me at Proverbs 18, 8. Uh, same words are said again in Proverbs 26, 22, but it says, The words of a whisperer, same word, are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. The idea is that the human heart has no resistance to this. You ever think through, sometimes you're, you're, you're in a conversation or you're in earshot of a conversation and someone starts talking about someone else who's not there in this way and they start speaking bad about them. So-and-so did this. Did you hear about what they did here? What is our inclination in that moment? I'll confess mine, and I bet you can relate. My inclination is to give ear to it. Ooh, I don't know that. Really? They did that. Either I engage with that conversation or I don't. It doesn't matter. My heart is prone to desire to know the thing that I don't know, but we are enamored with dirt on other people. There's a myriad of TV shows that exist simply to show how dirty and horrible people can be and talk about people who aren't present. I think of The View. I think of many conservative outlets as well. But again, these are things that exist in the world. Paul or James is addressing those within the body of Christ. And he says these things shouldn't be so. But we can easily entertain them. Even in the circles where we would call, we're the closest with some of these people. But the wise would avoid such conversations. Proverbs twenty nineteen says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, rightly so, but therefore, he, the, the, Solomon says, therefore do not associate with a simple babbler. The word in Hebrew for simple is patha, and it means to be open or wide. When put together with babbler, the phrase would imply a person who always has their mouth wide open. 
It's that individual that anytime you encounter this person and you come across this person, their mouth is open and they're telling you something about someone else in an effort to persuade or deceive you in some way about something or to prop themselves up. Look what I know. But this is the idea. He says, do not associate with someone that's constantly got their mouth open and they're speaking maliciously about someone else. But it can be difficult in those moments to shut that down. Whenever gossip begins to happen in a circle, in a conversation we're with, God's word would implore us as believers to shut it down or at least remove ourselves from it and give reason why we would remove ourselves from it. Hey, I don't need to know that about them. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's true. There's things that we may not know around that. I just I don't want to hear it, so please, please don't share that with me. Or just walk away, however you may feel led to handle that. But the way I say is, is you should not associate. We should be so weary of engaging and entertaining such conversations and such things, especially when it, the subject of it is someone that's in the body of Christ, someone that is a brother or sister. Now, the next question is, why do people slander? Now, before we get to why and, and the root, I want to give some examples around slander as, as we get there. But some of the best examples of slander is that of the religious leaders and the way they slandered and spoke against Jesus. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these are the ones that Jesus engaged with, with very often throughout Jerusalem, throughout Judea, during his ministry. But in Matthew eleven nineteen says they, the religious leader, they say, and this is Jesus speaking this, um, and he's quoting them to say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So their derogatory slanderous statement is that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is a glutton and a drunkard. And also that he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now real quick, I have kind of an aside on this. Have you ever heard someone refer to Jesus as a friend of sinners? I believe it's in a song. You know, and we, and we think of that as a good thing, that Jesus, yeah, he's a friend of sinners, right? But that's not a true statement of Jesus. Jesus is not a friend of sinners. This is the Pharisees saying that Jesus is a friend of sinners, and they use it in a way that is meant to slander him and defame him as a friend of sinners. But nowhere else in your New Testament or in the Gospels does it get say that Jesus is actually, in effect, friend of sinners. That doesn't mean that he doesn't love sinners. That doesn't mean that he didn't ever sit or recline at table with sinners or die for sinners. He came to save them. But in John chapter 15, Jesus makes clear who his friends are, and that's his disciples, those who would follow him. Jesus speaks plainly and tells them, you are my friends. And because you're my friends, I'm going to let you know what I'm doing. No one else had, was privileged to that because they weren't friends. There's a distinction that's there when we think through Jesus, friend of sinners. It was a derogatory, slanderous phrase from the Pharisees against him. But nonetheless, as an example, this is how they would look at Jesus and what they would say. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 59 and through 61, you see Jesus has been arrested. He's being put on trial. And it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. So not only would they slander him out in the streets during his ministry, whenever they have him arrested, they're trying to find someone that would falsely accuse him or falsely speak against him in some way. And it says that there weren't any. So that they could put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. So many people came forward to give false witness against Jesus. 
But then ultimately, the last two came forward, and this is what the last two said. This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, this is a false testimony against Jesus, though it is a true statement. Because Jesus did, in fact, say that I will destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it again. But the thing about the false testimony is that these people had no clue what Jesus meant by that statement. They heard a statement, they recounted it as a true statement that he said, but they had no idea of his intent and what he meant by it. And their intention in sharing this was to be malicious and malign and to denigrate what Jesus Christ had said. And this becomes the very thing that they ultimately find him guilty of, is blasphemy and speaking against the Lord God. So there's examples of how they treated the Messiah. But what's at root in that? The religious leaders of the day, they had the authority. They were the spokesmen for God. They were the righteous ones. They led the people. And then all of a sudden you have this man come along and he does all of that perfectly. All the healings and the signs and the miracles that Jesus did that they could not do. So what's at root in their slander, in their, in their maligning their Savior? What's at root is anger. What's at root is jealousy and envy. It's, it's back to that list, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, conceit. They're more about themselves and what they are losing by the presence of Jesus in their city and what he is there to do. It's what's at root. It's envy, it's fear, ultimately it's hatred. Psalm 41.7 says, All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Now, all of these characteristics, they all find their root in pride. The issue is it comes back to us. It comes back to ourselves. When we speak down on others, we do that simply to lift ourselves up. Whatever our underlying motivation may be, it finds its root in pride in that I'm going to speak down against this person so that I may lift, be lifted up. Look what I know in its simplest form. But this is exactly the opposite of what James said one verse earlier in chapter 10 where we ended last week. It says that we should humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The problem is that you and I, most often, we don't want God's exaltation. Or we do want God's exaltation, but we don't want to wait for it. And we certainly don't want to do and live according to the thing that would give it, that we would earn that or find that. Such as we don't want to live humbly. We want to live arrogantly and pridefully. Look what I know. Listen to what I have to say. But in order for us to be lifted up, someone has to come down. Now, ultimately, this does come from the enemy. It comes from Satan. After all, he is the father of lies. All right, before everything that we know came to be, you have Satan, you know, you have Lucifer, he's in the heavens. And he's this glorious created being, but in his pride, he wants to be not just like God, he wants to become or put himself in the position of God. And his pride had him cast out of the presence of God. But then Lucifer fell. And then how was it that he swayed Adam and Eve? Was it not false testimony against God? Did God really say, he didn't mean it like that. He wants to dupe you. So ultimately, it comes from 
Satan. John 8, 44, Jesus says to the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The implication, church, is when you and I speak falsely against brothers and sisters in Christ and the family of God and the household of faith, when our behavior does that to one another, where we would press one another down instead of lifting one another up, our character is more akin to that of the devil than that of Jesus Christ. And the theme that runs through James's letter, if we profess a saving faith, our life should reflect that, not contrary to that. So who does it? Well, everyone does it. But let's keep it in context. Who is James rebuking for doing it? He's, redu- he's rebuking believers. He's writing this letter to the church. He's saying these things to you and I. Now, who do we do it against? Well, we will do it against anyone. But again, who is James correcting doing it against it is against our brothers and sisters in Christ the very first part of verse 11 he says do not speak evil against one another brothers the first time he uses the word katalaleo and the first time he mentions brothers immediately he says the one who katalaleo against a brother for the second time And then judges his brother for the third time. Just You see the repetitive nature of what James is saying, driving home the point. I'm talking about how you talk about and respond to your brothers and sisters in Christ. But now how do we have to think about one another in order to speak this way about one another? When we think of just the way we looked at katalaleo and just that word and what it means and slander and, and all of those things and backbiting, how do we have to think about one another? One, as enemies, I would say clearly. I would have to think of you as an enemy if I would treat you in such a way. I, I, would, how, I wouldn't think of you as someone that I love. But oftentimes it could be someone that's standing in our way of something. I have this position that I want to rise to and I see you in my way. Therefore, I'm going to slander. I'm going to formulate lies about you to defame you so that you lessen and then I can step in. Such as the position of a heart, by example. It could be a cover-up for some deficiency or simply someone to blame. My kid gets bad grades at school, but it's the teacher's fault. The teacher's not teaching effectively or not teaching correctly. They're showing favoritism to other kids, and they're, they're pushing my kid aside. That's the reason my kid gets bad grades. But you see how easy it is to slander and malign. So-and-so gets away with everything because their dad has money. Charles Spurgeon is a greedy pastor because he never gives eggs away for free. Such is the foolishness and the simple statements that would slander and bring down. James says clearly, do not speak in such a way against one another. So that's 11a. Now 11b. So the one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother. So now we he deals with and mentions those that speak against, those that katalaleo, and then know now those that do that, they also judge or crino. Crino in this context means to condemn. So from slander, the next step is pronouncing judgment and condemnation. Right? If I, if I say a statement about someone or against someone, now I have to qualify that statement. 
And in qualifying that statement comes judgment and condemnation for the thing that which sin. If Charles Spurgeon is a greedy person, well, why is he a greedy person? Well, he's got all these means. He's got all this wealth. He should just be giving eggs away for free. So now I've judged him as greedy and I've condemned him for the behavior. So James warns against it. Paul in uh, Romans chapter 2 says this regarding how we judge others. He says, uh, Therefore you have no excuse, O men, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Jesus puts it very plainly in Matthew 7, 4. He says, take the log out of your own eye before you start trying to deal with the speck in your brother's eye. But we are very critical with the way we see people. But we find faults in other people oftentimes to to settle or justify the things that we know we're doing wrong. We try and make their spank, their speck a plank and our plank a speck if we would even claim to have anything in our eye to begin with. But Jesus would say, deal with yourself first before you even try and deal with anyone else. Verse 2 of Matthew 7, that with the measure you use, take heed, the same will be measured back to you. But now we do make judgments. This is something that was mentioned uh, several weeks ago from Brandon. He touched on this. I think I have before as well. But returning back to the same thing is a good way for us to remember the thing that needs to be remembered so that we can do the thing that needs to be remembered. But we do make judgments. We should have a discernment about us. We see things that can be wrong. It's to see things plainly as they are. But there's a difference between confrontation in an effort to build up rather than condemnation in an effort to bring down. 1 Corinthians 5 gives a wonderful example of this. Uh, Paul writes to the church there, and uh, verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with, sexual immor- with sexually immoral people. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's saying, at one point in time, I wrote to you and I told you to not associate with these type of people, the sexually immoral, swindlers, idolaters, and all that. But I didn't mean those that are in the world doing this because they exist in the world. We live in the world. You'd have to go out of the world. Why? Because these things exist in people. But what does he go on to say in verse 11? He says, no, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. So you begin to see the distinction that he's getting to. In verse 12, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I think it's, it's very important for us to wrap our mind around what he's getting at when we talk about judgment against one another. Confrontation in order to build up versus condemnation in order to bring down. Is what John or what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. He's saying, I'm not telling you to not associate with the sexually immoral. Remember, Jesus, he did recline with tax collectors and sinners, but the purpose wasn't to just befriend them. His purpose was to save them. His purpose was for them to see their need for him, their sin and their utter need for him. 
You and I cannot share the gospel if we do not associate with those that are in the world that would struggle in these ways. But contrastingly, we do judge those in the body that would make a profession of faith. I have saving faith in Jesus Christ, but yet their pattern of life is marked by sexual morality, swindling, idolatry, greed, drunkenness, and these things. There is a vast difference between a person who falls into temptation and commits adultery against their spouse, has has godly grief on that, there's conviction on that sin, I have wronged God and my spouse, and there's confession and there's repentance and there's a walking out of a path of reconciliation and restoring the sanctity of their marriage. The church is deeply involved with such a thing and there's no judgment and there's no condemnation for that. But if the pattern of life of an individual is one of constant adultery against a spouse with no repentance, no godly grief then you have the right to question the validity or authenticity of the faith they profess. Because their pattern of life is one that isn't fitting with what God's word would say a believer would do. So therefore, as Paul says, yes, you purge the evil person from among you. He says earlier in 1 Corinthians 5, the the direct issue there is a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. It's probably most likely his stepmother. But nonetheless, he's involved in an affair with his stepmother. And the church is allowing it. They're not doing anything about it. There's a pattern of life that exists within the body. And they're not speaking into it or correcting it or doing anything. Paul says, you get, get that person out of the body. A little leaven leavens the whole lump in that regard. But still, you make a clear judgment. You see a behavior that is unbecoming and not fitting the life of a believer in Christ. So there's church discipline that exists. There's judgment that exists. And it's not condemnation. It's correction. So we do make judgments. But we need to understand that difference. So there's a lot there on judgment. I think it's very important for us as a body to understand that distinction. Um. So now 11c says, so now moving on, the the one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and now judges the law. So now what law is he referring to? Now we've talked about this briefly, but it's not the law of Moses. It's it's not the, the 613 commandments that are contained within that law. It's certainly not the oral tradition of those religious leaders who write extra laws on top of God's law to make sure they don't fall into or fall against God's law, but the very laws they created to not do that thing are the things that led them into the thing they didn't supposed to do. Did y'all follow that? I think I rambled. But nonetheless, it is not that law. It's the law that he mentioned earlier. In chapter 1, verse 25, it's the perfect law. It's the law of liberty. In 2.8, it's the royal law that according to Scripture, we should, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law that James is referring to is the law of love. When you and I speak falsely and slanderously against a brother or sister, we judge them accordingly and we condemn them accordingly. But James draws this conclusion. If you do that, you are speaking against, you're slandering God's law of love. And you're judging that thing. 1 John 3.11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Notice his language. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, 
from the onset, at the precipice, this is it. This is the thing that you have heard, and it is that you should love one another. Later, 1 John 4, 20 and 21, if anyone says, I love God, makes a profession of faith, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the law of love. This is the commandment from God, to love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. This is the law of love. And this is what we kataleo, or we tear down when we tear down our brother or sister in Christ. It's very serious language and very serious things that James is teaching us what we do when we speak against one another. This is the level to which God views his children and the level to which he desires his children to interact with one another and not do to one another. I think of my home. Yes, I slandered my brothers. No doubt that happened, but it is 100% unacceptable to do so. If my parents caught me doing that, speaking or lying about one of my brothers, I got in trouble for doing that thing. We're taught that we can understand that. James and God's word would tell us the seriousness of it. Jesus says in John 13, 25, he says, This is the way that that the world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. It's not the way we slander and backbite one another. That's what the world does, and the world does it to itself. But why might someone not desire to join us to come into this body? If the world constantly sees the church slandering one another and backbiting one another, why would they come in and want to be a part of that? Because they can do that out there without all the other things we say you have to do. That's their understanding of God's people. You have to do this, 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 and this, and not do that, 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 and that. But hey, we're going to do that, 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 and that, but hold you to what you're not supposed to do. We're going we're to get on to you if you do that. But it's okay if you don't or if you do. The world would say, we do that out there. Why would we want to come in here and do that? I got better things to do on a Sunday morning than to come be told to do something that you're already not doing. That's the foolishness of it. Church, we are all guilty of it. James would say, don't do it. But now the problem we have it does come from the enemy, yes, but it's also a problem with our hearts. This is a point that I think might be the fourth time I've mentioned this in my teaching through this letter, and I will not belay putting this point in any teaching as we go through this letter for sure. But the problem is not my mouth and what comes out of my mouth. The problem is my heart where it comes from. Matthew 15, 18 says, But the, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jesus makes clear what comes out of our heart. What comes out of our heart proceeds from our mouth. The problem is what we say. Sin begins here, and it ends with an action. When it comes to our speech, it's always a matter of the heart. If we don't deal with our hearts, we'll never change the way we talk. Now, 11D Wrapping up this verse, he says, But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
He says, you have elevated yourself to the position of God. And church, that is a dangerous place to be. It is a dangerous, heretical, blasphemous thing to try and elevate ourselves to God's position. That is the thing that Satan attempted to do, and he was cast out of God's presence forever. And all he has tried to do since is destroy what God has done in God's people from that point on because his heart was so bent to be in God's position. But James says, if you do these things, you put yourself in the position of a judge. In verse 12, James makes abundantly clear, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The answer is no one. You and I are no one to do what is only for God to do. We can't save anyone. We can't ultimately destroy anyone. We can destroy somebody's reputation, sure. But God is the one. He's the ultimate authority that can save and destroy, that can pronounce judgment from pure motives and absolute understanding with absolute authority. You and I will never be in such a position, no matter how much we desire to. But any effort we make to be in that position, God will press us down. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. But those that exalt themselves will be humbled. And that will come in the form of judgment. Certainly. So the way in which you and I get a handle on our tongues in regards to how we speak about one another is yes, we need to deal with our heart issue, but we also need to change the way we think. Namely, the way we think about one another. But do we believe the best about one another? Do we hear what someone may say or a situation or I heard this person did this or I see them doing that? If my immediate response within the household is faith is to believe the absolute worst about them, then yes, my mind is going to go to a place where I might slander them or speak against them with no full understanding of what they're doing. Such as something as silly as, what, he never gives eggs away for free? What a greedy person. Versus believing the best about him, there's got to be something there. There's got to be a reason for it. Or just being okay with, all right, it's not a big deal. But do we view people as someone to blame or someone in our way? Or someone to easily tear down so that we can lift ourselves up? Or if we change the way we think about one another and view one another and we see one another as the children of God, each other as co-heirs with God, as someone that's in the household of faith, a brother and sister in Christ, if we land there that we are each equally given and equal recipients of God's love and that Jesus died the same way for every one of us for the same things, and if we view people through that lens, that we're all covered by the same grace, we're receiving of the same mercy, then we will think differently of one another. We will speak differently of one another. We will think the best of one another. And when we hear gossip or someone slandering one another, we will be apt to say, that's not the character of that person that I know. There's got to be something else there. Would you quit saying that about them until you understand differently? That is a gentle rebuke against a brother or sister who's doing this very thing. And if we're not willing to do that when we spot it, then we're going to engage in it and do the same thing. And it will damn a person. And it will split. Close friends, it will separate you and I from one another. Versus being willing to spot it, speak into it, and gently admonish it. 
Now, I mentioned earlier um, Brenda's devotional yesterday morning, and I'm going to quote a portion of her devotional as we wrap up because it was just wonderful. As far as how we might change our hearts and the way we think and what you and I may do when we feel an inclination to behave in such a way, this is what Brenda says she does in these moments. She does it by fixing my eyes on Jesus, His eternal purposes, and relying on the Holy Spirit. She says, I am filled with His gentleness and peace. I can look at these hurtful actions and not take them so personally. I have since confessed these sinful attitudes. I've asked the Lord to reveal any remaining sin over these issues and left the judgment of their sin to God. What freedom that brings. After all, if I'm not careful, I can become a difficult person too. I'm so thankful that my faithful father never gives up on me and continues to teach me what it looks like to walk closely with him. She just had the clear understanding that if I walk closely with my Lord, to walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of our flesh. We will see ourselves through His eyes. And when we have that understanding, that changes the way we see everyone else, where we can look away from how we've personally been harmed, understanding that we can personally harm anyone else. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 instructs us to let bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away and be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving as God in Christ forgave us. If that is our heart and we operate in that way daily, church, daily, I need to remind myself of these truths on this particular issue. I will do well to not speak evil against any one of you. You would do well to not speak evil about anyone else in this room that you may worship with. I'll confess, they're in the room. I've spoken evil against people that are in my journey group before. Really have. And that's damaging. It doesn't help our relationship. But even in that failure where there's confession and repentance, unity follows. And that's God's desire for his people. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this morning. and In your word, Lord, and the challenge of it, Lord, but you... You clearly give direction, Lord, where, where we would behave in such a way that would be damaging to ourselves, but damaging to your body. As we are all members of the same body with you, the head of the body, Lord, if we're in disunity and backbiting and slandering one another, we can't accomplish the thing that you have for the body to do when members of the body are fighting against one another. Lord, teach us these areas, just the little pockets of our minds and our hearts where we would view someone and judge someone and condemn someone for things that we likely do ourselves, Lord. But give us the ability, Lord, to see things, see people the way you see them, Lord. To love them as you've commanded and instructed us to love them, Lord, for your glory, Lord, but also for our sake and our good. 
that work would continue and to move forward, Lord, but you can't do work with people that are harming one another. We want to see you do great things, Lord. My desire is to see you do great things in my life, in the life of your church, Lord. But we have to let go of our inclination of what's right and give ourselves humbly to you, Lord. And we will find the exaltation that we would desire, Lord. And we will move forward in wonderful, life-changing ways, Lord. I pray that you help us to do that, that we see that work take place in our days here within this body, Lord. I love you and I thank you, Lord, for this people. And I pray your blessing upon us and it's in your name we pray, amen.